This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Big winter storm across much of the country. Tons of snow, even places you wouldn't think of as winter wonderland. So the question is, does the deep freeze slow the delivery, the distribution of the vaccines? Cases are apparently on the rise of an inflammatory syndrome impacting kids infected with COVID. Melbourne, Australia has gone back into a strict lockdown. 13 new cases triggered that. Just 13. Can the country keep the virus under control again? The best and only way to get out of the pandemic is for herd immunity. But when will that happen if billions of people have to still be vaccinated. Getting back to lockdowns, we'll compare two places in the U.S. that had different strategies but uh, might have similar results. We'll look into how one small state avoided the large problem of closing schools. We start with the storm, how it could impact the vaccine deliveries. Dr. Julie Swan, head of the Department of Industrial Systems Engineering, North Carolina State, also worked with the CDC, Red Cross, in distribution efforts. The doctor, how likely is all the snow and the ice to disrupt things? For places that don't normally have winter storms with lots of snow and ice, they don't usually have as much salt and sand and snow plows. So it is likely to cause delays of a few days. We also know that power has gone out in several places, and that may also contribute to it. So, you know, we, we certainly could expect a delay of, a let's say, a week in some of those places hardest hit that do not normally have winter storms. Now, will this end just up being a week delay for these people, reschedule the appointments so we can still store the vaccines fine, or are we worried about things going bad? I know there was at least a couple cases of them rushing some of them into arms when the power went out because they're like, okay, we've already opened these. We got to use them. Yeah. So um, a lot of times the freezers do have backup power, but of course that may not be sufficient all of the time. Um, So that is one concern. There have been people who have had uh, canceled appointments. Those will get rescheduled and they will try to put in enough people to just deliver doses twice as fast that next week. But it could have some ripple effects over the coming days and, and week or two. Uh, You've worked, as we've mentioned, uh, leading into you with uh, CTC, with the Red Cross. Uh, FEMA is now involved in the distribution of the vaccines. What role do these organizations play when we have these sort of uh, weather events that that conspire to make it more difficult to get a hold of this very precious cargo? Can they do anything in any material way to ease this? Great question. Um, But keep in mind, it's not just the vaccines that have trouble moving. It's the people in their houses who might not be able to get to, let's say, a mass vaccination clinic. I don't think that it will make a huge difference to have FEMA over the next three to four days. They certainly provide more manpower that could help as the roads are clear and we need to now double up on appointments. They are also going to be used, I think, to set up some of these mass vaccination clinics throughout the U.S. And so they couldn't they certainly could choose to start in in these areas or even to double up later in these areas after we've gotten the weather out of the way. I wonder what you think of our new program here. Blue Shield's going to run this. They say they have this algorithm and it's going to be about getting the vaccines where they need to go and and where they're of the most use. And, And they're saying, look, we can we can get three million to where they need to be by March 1st, which is not that far away. But then the counter thought to that is, well, we would have to have the 3 million doses to send places, and there's no guarantee of us getting those. 
Yeah, you need both. You, well, you need the, the supply, you need the analytics and algorithms. You also need boots on the ground and lots and lots of details that can help you make sure that not only do you have an efficient flow at a particular site, but that you also have a good process for getting people registered and one that is fair for people who may not have transportation or a lot of technology at home. Dr. Julie Swan directs the Department of Industrial Systems Engineering, North Carolina State University. Many parents want their kids back to school, but they also want them to be safe from the virus. They worry an infection could get their kids really sick. Cases increasing in kids with this MIS-C, this inflammatory syndrome. So how worried should parents be? Dr. Jennifer Schuster, pediatric infectious disease physician, Children's Mercy Hospital, Kansas City. So, doctor, the kids that are turning up, there's more of them now, we understand. And those who do make it to the hospital are, are sicker. So we have heard recent reports uh, out of both LA and Washington, D.C., where pediatricians and pediatric infectious disease doctors and uh, critical care doctors are reporting that they're seeing an increase in Miss C cases and that the cases that are presenting to the hospital are more severe, are sicker than those who were presenting early on in the pandemic. Now, I, I would imagine that one possible explanation for more cases would be simply that more people have now got uh, gotten infected by by the coronavirus. But why would there be, do you think, more um, dramatic uh, presentations of this in children than before? Has something is it because of the variants? Is something else changed here? That's a really great question. We are still working to learn a lot more about Miss C. We don't know if the variants are playing a role in uh, the, the changing presentation. At this time, we don't have enough information about which variants are circulating and the degree to which they're circulating in the United States. Uh, what we do know is that these increases in Miss C seem to follow increases in COVID-19 cases in the community. So for example, in my region, we actually saw an increase in cases in December and January, early in January, which really seemed to correspond to the holidays. So after Thanksgiving and Christmas get-togethers, we were seeing an increase in missed cases. But in terms of the severity, we're still learning more about what may be contributing to that. For the kids who do come down with this, if they, you know, make it through seriously ill, even they they do go back home in in a relatively healthy condition, which is good. But are we sure that they're not going to experience something lingering later on? That's one of the questions, too. That's a great question and one that we're trying to figure out. So we only know we have we've only been in this pandemic for about a year, even though it seems like much longer. So the missy kids that are getting diagnosed and treated now uh, do look like in the short term that they seem to be recovering well, but they are getting followed very closely to better understand what, if any, the long term outcomes of having this syndrome are. Are children treated in much the same way as adults who end up being hospitalized with COVID, uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies, uh, you know, the, the large amounts of steroids, or is there a different kind of treatment? So for Miss C, we treat these kids a little bit differently. So the children who come in with acute COVID-19 typically get the same treatments that many of the adults will get. But what MIS-C is, is it's an inflammatory syndrome that occurs about, we think, four to six weeks after acute COVID-19. 
So the treatment uh, focuses on calming the immune system down and decreasing that hyperinflammatory response. For adults who have acute COVID-19, steroids are a part of their treatment in many cases, uh, but also antivirals as well. And so that piece is not what we use in MIS-C, where we're really focused only on that hyperinflammatory response. Dr. Jennifer Schuster, pediatric infectious disease physician, Children's Mercy Hospital, Kansas City. Australia and New Zealand, two countries known for their strict lockdowns, many people credit those lockdowns for preventing the virus from spreading out of control. Melbourne, Australia had been open for business up until uh, last week, an outbreak at a hotel. 16 cases in the teens it triggered a hard lockdown for not just the city, but the province. Dr. Tony Blakely, epidemiologist, School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. So, doctor, a uh, hard lockdown. Take us through, and, and so few cases, at least like we're used to, uh, to trigger one. Essentially, it's stay-at-home orders. So somebody like myself who's an academic, I stay at home, I work at home. Um, You only go to work if you're an essential worker and you need to work outside of your home. So, for example, some construction sites, which have to keep going, people still go to those. When you're outside, you have to wear a mask, even if you're walking the dog around the block and you're not near anybody else. Uh, All sort of uh, physical, uh, social events get shut down. So, for example, we've got the Australian Open here at the moment, so all crowds are stopped going to that, and it's just essential coaching staff. That's what it looks like. And how many times have you done this since essentially, you know, (laughs) getting COVID free after you closed the borders and then went on isolation for a while? This is our third time. So we did it initially uh, back in about March, April. And then Melbourne had a a second wave, which peaked at only, in your language, 800 cases a day. Um, And we used a hard lockdown then to actually eliminate the virus and get down to zero community transmission. And that's why we've gone into a lockdown now at only 16-odd cases. Now, the reason that is, is that countries like New Zealand, Australia, Taiwan, places like that, Pacific Islands, don't have any community transmission And to keep it that way, because when you don't have community transmission, life is a lot better. You have to act very, very fast when the virus sneaks through quarantine somewhere so that you can return to zero community transmission. So it's inverting the paradigm from what you used to. You use lockdowns when the numbers get high and threaten health services. We use them as soon as there's an escape out that we think our contact traces may not be able to keep on top of because we don't want to get the, allow the virus to circulate. Well, actually, here in L.A., it seems like uh, when the numbers go up, we actually use it as a reason to open everything up, which is what we did a few <laughs> months ago. Um, I, can I presume, though, that there is a high degree, and maybe this is a bad uh, uh, presumption, so let me know. But I'm presuming that there's a high degree of of, of uh, compliance with these lockdowns and not a great deal of need, or maybe any need, for enforcement? It's pretty good. Uh, we've behaved pretty well, to put it that way, like being at school. Um, there are fines in place. So, for example, uh, the previous lockdown we did, there were different rules for Melbourne and Victoria. And if you were caught crossing the Ring of Steel, as it was called, the peripheral border around Melbourne into rural um, Victoria, you would get fined. There are fines on the book for people not wearing masks. They're seldom used, but they're there if the police choose to use them. How long is this lockdown going to be? I think it's going to be finishing in about 12 hours. So it was a five-day snap lockdown 
to essentially be a circuit breaker to try and stop the transmission of the UK variant, which is spreading quicker, and allow the contact traces to get ahead. So basically, we've got about oh, 1,500 people, I think, in quarantine at the moment. And the new cases yesterday occurred amongst them, so they're safely quarantined. And unless there's been a whole heap of cases they're just about to announce now, unless there's been a whole lot of cases today out in the community somewhere, I think we'll be coming out of lockdown tonight. Dr. Tony Blakely, epidemiologist, School of Population, Global Health, University of Melbourne. Doctor, thanks. Coming up after this short break, will we ever achieve herd immunity or will this virus keep causing major problems forever? The goal of vaccinating most of the world might take a long, long time to achieve if it can ever be done. Billions of people need to get a shot, but that's unlikely to happen anytime soon. So does this mean that all this just never ends? Dr. W. Ian Lipkin, director of the Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia University School of Public Health. So, doctor, you know, a long time ago we thought COVID-free was something that's achievable, but it's looking like it's not. It's not all doom and gloom. I think there are ways in which we can. Uh, we can extend vaccination to the remainder of the world. And the sooner we, that we do this, the faster we're going to get out of this uh, predicament. Um, one of the things that we're beginning to explore, which was very important during the smallpox eradication campaign, was a concept called ring vaccination. The idea is that you identify cases where people are infected and you immunize not only that you know, the individuals who are immediately around that group, but the people who are the secondary contacts. Now, of course, we don't have the ability to identify most of the people who are infected because so many that are infected without doing testing, but testing is becoming more commonplace and less and less expensive. So we're exploring this as a possibility and we think it might be a way in which we could stretch the amount of vaccine that we have so that we could be more effective in but, controlling the spread of the virus. But of course, all that does require a high degree of coordination and planning. Uh, and I, I don't know, I, I, I hate to say this, but it does seem like things we were able to do years and decades ago, we've got dumber about how to do now. Well, I agree. And we've, you know, we've largely abandoned our infrastructure. Uh, but I'm quite optimistic that with this new administration, that there's going to be more resources that will be flowing locally uh, to public health departments as well as internationally to begin to slow the spread of this virus. Um, that's certainly the commitment that uh, the Biden administration has made, and I, um, I anticipate they'll hold up. When it comes to the, the practical, like what affects my daily life, what does it look like as we learn to try and live with COVID? Because we live with other viruses. I mean, are these the periodic booster shots? Is this like a flu vaccine, but for COVID? Are masks back every winter, but we're okay the rest of the time? What do you think it ends up looking like in our at least near future? So in the near future, even after you've been vaccinated, because vaccination does not fully eliminate replication of virus we're looking at masking. As the number of cases begin to drop, we think we're going to back, move back towards something which is a new normal. You asked about whether or not boosters will be required. As this virus evolves, uh, it is possible that just like with flu, we will have to have an annual vaccine that's tailored around what we're seeing spreading globally. But the sooner we get this thing under control by vaccinating the world, the less pressure there will be on this virus to evolve 
and to evade the immune response that we induce with the vaccines. So it is not only ethically the right thing to do, it's also on our own best interest to not focus just nationally and regionally, but to think very carefully about what we need to do on a global level. But, but let me zero in a little bit more, if we can, on this analogy that, that does keep coming up with, you know, the flu that, that well, every year we have to take a flu shot. Uh, so we'll do that with this as well. But there are some key differences, aren't there? I mean, for one thing, you know, the flu pretty much is a is seasonal, right? So we have many, many months in this country where we don't have to deal with it. That gives us time to catch our breath, time for doctors' offices to kind of recharge, if you will, and get new vaccines in stock to give people the new vaccine. We're just beginning to vaccinate people for the old virus. So how do we don't we always end up playing catch up with the mutations? Well, you raise several good points. Let's start with the first one. This one, this new virus, we've not seen before. And therefore, it may well be that as we have more and more people vaccinated, more and more people who've been infected, that this will be less and less of a challenge. So there was a period, for example, and you're in LA, so we were working with Directors Guild, Screen Actors Guild, and others and we were trying to figure out how frequently we had to test and what we had to do. Uh, and what we did during the summer is very different than what we're doing now. So we've ramped up again because we've had to be concerned as the number of infected cases in the community went up. Now, as the number of infectious cases in the community begin to drop, I think people will begin to let their guard down. Our hope is that they don't do this prematurely. But it is not uh, out of the question that we will find that certainly in, in months where we have a lot of respiratory transmission that we will see people wearing masks. Uh, and in fact, if we'd done this earlier in the pandemic, we might have you know, missed a lot of disease and a lot of morbidity and mortality. Uh, so the good news is that the amount of flu that we've seen this year has also dropped as a result of these masks. So masking in, say, late fall, winter, early spring would not necessarily be a bad thing. It might be very, very helpful. But I would hope that as we move into warmer months, that we will move back toward what we used to see. That is assuming we can get everybody vaccinated. Doctor, so This is something we're going to have to need to be vigilant about. Doctor, thanks so much. we got to run. Dr. W. Ian Lipkin directs the Center for Infection and Immunity, Columbia University's School of Public Health. California and Florida have taken very different approaches in handling the pandemic. California has tried lockdowns for much of the past year, while Florida opened up businesses and let local governments decide how to regulate things. So which system is better? Looks like uh, both states are actually going to end up with similar rates of infections and hospitalizations. Same for Sweden and Germany. Different approaches. We talked about that before. Dr. Stuart Ray, Vice Chair of Data Integrity Analytics at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. So, Dr., different approaches, uh, different lockdowns, different rules. Does everybody just end up in the same place? Well, I think it depends on how seriously we take the lockdowns and how we bolster them with the other pieces of the puzzle. Rarely does a solution work in isolation. And when we look at countries like New Zealand and Australia, where lockdowns were coupled with uh, protections for the people who couldn't simply stay at home, that couldn't afford to or had jobs where they needed to get out, uh, they were successful. Um, in places where uh, that was not done, and we can tell from cell phone data and other 
uh, feeds that states like uh, California, while they had a lockdown, they still had lots of movement uh, with folks needing to go to work, needing to move for various reasons, or not taking lockdown seriously. And I think uh, we can't make much conclusion about the barn door if the horse is getting out through another uh, way. And I think in this case, uh, lockdowns are probably not the thing that's being tested. It's the coherent, coordinated messaging at the national level uh, with testing and other means to make that lockdown really effective. So, so even though uh, the, the figures at the moment uh, seem to be somewhat comparable between California and Florida, uh, different populations, but both large, both uh, having similar uh, per capita um, per 100,000 uh, in terms of infection rate, death rate, that sort of thing. Is that because the, the lock, quote, lockdown in California was more mythical than it was reality? Well, I certainly would say that it was real and that it affected a lot of folks. So it had huge economic impact. It's had huge social impact. But did it really stop people moving? Uh, you know, we, we tried to protect our nursing home population by uh, limiting visitation, but we still had people providing essential services like uh, kidney dialysis or food service uh, that brought uh, the virus into those settings and uh, resulted in outbreaks. And without lots of testing and surveillance, uh, we really couldn't stop those outbreaks from occurring if all we did was close one door and not manage the rest. I wouldn't say they're mythical. I'm just saying that they weren't coordinated in a package that could achieve the stated goal. Well, on that note, then, is the is the great Monday morning quarterbacking of the pandemic going to be not using the first lockdown when you had really the public's kind of goodwill and everybody did stay home? I mean, in March, you could drive around here and there weren't the cars on the road, so you couldn't waste that exactly. opportunity. You had to get your contact tracing and your testing up to speed in those whatever, how many ever months you had before you started to lose people. Yeah, I think I think we really did lose an opportunity because we did not have the testing uh, to coordinate in a way that could really get things uh, to be done effectively. We know that other places did some of that. Um, of, co of course, that has to be sustained and you have to seriously trace when you have outbreaks. And I think that was a moment of opportunity. I think there have been others when we've gotten rates down and then they spike back up again. Uh, we saw that in the fall as well, that we, rates were lower and they really rocketed upward. Our numbers currently are very much like they were in October. And the question is, are we going to see another surge with holiday exuberance? Or are we going to try to get to uh, that whatever happens in warmer weather when rates go down? And if we can, if we can keep rates lower, uh, we'll save a lot of lives. If people get complacent right now, uh, we're going to see another spike. Uh, and it's possible that these variants will contribute to that. But I think, you know, the basic measures are there, whether the variants are a major operator or not. We need to try to uh, limit spread to as much as we can with masking, distancing, avoiding social gatherings, etc. Rhode Island is the country's smallest state that took perhaps one of the biggest risks in the pandemic. It kept its schools open. How did it manage to do that? Angelica Infante Green, Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education for the states of Rhode Island. Your schools were never closed. No. So we opened up our schools in September, as we do every year. Um, once we went out in March, 
we, from the day we went out, we were planning on how we were going to come back. And there was a couple of things that we wanted to really guide us. The data, we were going by um, numbers and research and um, not kind of how we were feeling, but we were determined to come back. So we set metrics up. And if each municipality met those metrics, then we were good to go. And um, all of the districts met the metrics, except for two that were um, high, um, were partially able to open it, which means 80% of their students had to be back. So we, we moved very quickly, very, very quickly. And we had a plan in place from the very beginning. And we're talking about all grades? All grades, all grades. We prioritized. Um, our elementary grades, K to five, had to be all five days. Middle schools, um, they had the option of some being hybrid and high schools, but we did not. Um, kids that are differently abled, our multilingual learners, our transition grades were non-negotiable about being back in, in person all five days, which were the ninth grade, the 12th grade. And then the others, we did sort of a hybrid model only for the two districts that could not open up all in person. Yeah, I was going to say, because we're used to, to in some districts here, the hybrid or short days going for a few hours and then you go and get home. And then the other half of the class goes in for a few hours or some districts experimenting with things like that. Are these just normal days like school as we'd expect, but with distancing and, and masks? And what are the, the protocols that worked for you? Yeah, so um, none of this is normal, by the way, <laughs> um, but they're back in school. They've been in school since September. Um, we put mitigation in place. So a couple of things that we, kids are wearing masks. We thought that kids were going to be a little challenged with that. They are not. Um, the adults have more of a challenge with the masks than the kids do. Um, the six and three feet, that is something we put in place Um where they should be walking, entrance, exit, entering procedures, all that had to be changed, all of it. Um, air filtration, all those things that we were worried about, we put mitigation in place. So when it was warm enough, we kept the windows open and had fans. Once it wasn't warm enough here, we had HEPA filters in every single classroom. So we took care of that for the spread. We have been keeping track of the positivity rate in the schools. And we know from our data that that is not the super spreader. We have 1.4% of the schools that we have been testing the kids. We're doing surveillance testing in the schools as well. So we put in all the, all the pieces that needed to be available um, or should be in place. A hotel in an upscale part of Johannesburg, South Africa, following standard COVID protocols, Mask wearing and social distancing are required, but three employees aren't following those rules. They don't wear masks and they don't necessarily social distance. But don't worry, because if you ever run into Lexi, Micah and Ariel, they can't get you sick because they're robots. They deliver room service, provide travel information and can drag up heavy luggage to rooms. Robot hospitality is not new. Japanese hotels have been deploying them for years. Ah, the future. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I think the robots would look kind of cute with masks. <laughs>